The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. My name is Cam, and I'm filling in for Gurgajid, and I'm here with the great Darian Douglas. Darian, what's up, man? What's up, everybody? Um, We got an amateur, and a, not an amateur, but a rookie. How about that? <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take a rookie. We got a rookie in the building tonight with, with Cam. It's good to see everybody, and I'm glad to be back. And uh, we're gonna get right into this, y'all, because we got we got a veteran in the game. We got a rookie, and we got a true vet in the in the music industry. He's gonna give us all the secrets, uh, and also we're gonna talk about his brand new record, uh, "Stranger Than Fiction." But just so y'all know, man, this guy has played with the Who's Who. I mean, Maria Schneider. We could we could really just stop there, Cam. You know what I mean? Like Maria Schneider, I don't know, Cam, you probably kind of young. You was probably listening to, I don't know, Robert Glasper or something, but I was listening to Maria Schneider, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Clark Terry, Phil Woods. Like, hey, you on, can't man. leave out Doc Cheatham, man. Doc, Doc Cheatham. You know, Doc Cheatham's pretty good. He's pretty good. So uh, without further ado, I, I want to welcome the one and only John Gordon to the Working Artist Project. What's up, John? Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. And... I, man, you know, you play with so many people. I, I I know we're here to talk about the record, but I, I do want to talk us a few people. I want to hear some stories about um, for sure before we get before we get into that, because I know you got them. And uh, I, I want to hear your Jimmy Cobb story, because Jimmy Cobb is like one of my all time favorite drummers of all time. You know, you know, I, well, I have a funny story. I, I didn't get to work with Jimmy very much. It was um, the 2002 Charlie Parker jazz festival i was playing i think i was playing at shanghai jazz and the guy that was the producer of the festival was there i was playing duo with bill charlap and he said hey man this is the last year that i'm doing i'm going to be doing this somebody else is going to take it over but i was listening to this record of yours and i want you to come and do it and then i said great i'd, I'd love to do the festival and then he called me back the next day he said i've been pro- promising peter bernstein a gig for like five years would you be, I said, what I would lo- love to play with Peter. I, I got to know Peter, you know, back in the Augies days. We were talking about our comparative ages. You guys are definitely too young for Augies. <laughs> but, uh, we're talking the 80s, gentlemen, 1984 hey. when I was first there. there again, I said, I told you there are rocks that are not nearly, <laughs> you know, as old as me at this point. But so at any rate, so, so then, and then Peter suggested uh, Jimmy Cobb. And so we wound up doing it uh, with Jimmy, which was great. And, um, and that was really the only time I got to play with him. I got to spend a little time with him one year. He was, um, he was one of the judges at the monk competition when I was in the house band, I think it was 2012 for the, for the monk competition. And it was, um, uh, and that was the other time I got to spend a little time with him, but, uh, man, one of the all time masters, you know? Yeah. It's man. I, I got to hang out with him, uh, pre COVID. I did one. I, we did a drum duo gig to a silent film. Wow! In the here in New York, and 
I don't know. It made my day. I, I don't think he cared much, but I was just like, oh, Mr. Cobb, man, I love you so much. <laughs> oh, yeah, a, man. The, the, the first record I ever got was a Miles record that a, my, ele, my middle, elementary school teacher gave me uh, with Jimmy Cobb. And I just like, you know, back then I it was a, it was on a CD and it's just like that was the only one I had. So I listened to it over and over and over, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about this. There's a Miles record with, there's a lot of Miles records with Jimmy Cobb on it, but one of the ones, I mean, everybody knows about Kind of Blue, of course, but Miles and Monk live at Newport. Half of the record was Monk, half of the record was was the Kind of Blue band. Yep. And uh, that record, man, where they do uh, Fran Dance and, and Straight No Chaser. and That's the one. That's the one I had. <laughs> man, that, that record just, that just... That's some of my favorite cannibal, that that train solo on the, the, the dizzy tune that ends up being a D flat blues. I mean, mm-hmm. and the way Cobb plays on that, man, it's just just unbelievable. I, yeah, I, I love that record. So, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. Like that's that's the thing that, that really gets me. Like when mm-hmm. I was a kid and I got to be around, you know, it, not even that I necessarily played with some of these people. Some of them I was very lucky to play with. One time I was 18 years old, I'm sitting at the bar at Sweet Basil's and Art Blakey just came and smacked me on my back really hard. Like I was like, I had like my little cranberry juice and I was like, wham, I was like, what? How you doing, man? You working? And I was like, what? Like I didn't have a horn with me. He just sat and talked to me for like 10, 15 minutes. And I think, and then I found out it was like literally 20 years later, I found out that he he had seen me playing at Don Sickler's like when I was a teenager in this thing that, that Don was running with some uh, some young musicians. But I mean, that's to me, that's what the music is about, those connections and just just and all those musicians of that generation were so generous. man. You know, I mean, I, I, I came up sitting in with Eddie Chambly from shortly after I turned 17 on Saturday afternoons at Sweet Basil's, the brunch gig. And sometimes with Doc Cheatham too, I got to know Doc fairly well. And we played a bunch of gigs together uh, at the Oslo Jazz Festival. Um, and and um, that was, I mean, the first time I went over there, I was 20. But the opening night concert, I, and I just, you know, to this day, I was like, how in God's name did I end up on this thing? Some people heard me sitting in with, with Eddie and they, so that so the opening night concert was Jay McShann, Doc, Al Gray, and a saxophone player you guys may not know named Benny Waters. I mean, I think uh, Benny Waters, like like Doc and Benny Waters, they knew pops. Like they they went back to the twenties, you know. Like wow. like Benny wow. like Benny Waters was the elder statesman. Doc Cheetah was not the oldest guy on the band. Like <laughs> I, Benny Waters was like close. He was in his late eighties. I think Doc was maybe in his early eighties, around eighty at the time. I just thought, how, how did I wind up here? Right. But I just, that, that, those are, that's the biggest blessing of my whole life as a musician is that I got to be around people like that. And Benny Carter and Mel Lewis and, and Flip Phillips and Kenny Deverne and Phil and, and, and Roy Eldridge. And I mean, like they just, I got to be around them some, I got to play with them some. And so I just always felt and that's kind of like this this book I, I wrote came out last year called Jazz Dialogues. I felt like, okay, I, like somehow I can't lose this, you know, like this is lucky for me, but I want to be able to kind of pass this on. And that's what, you know, people like Phil Woods and Charles McPherson said to me too, when I got to spend time with them. So I, I think, you know, I, I'm right there with you that I'm just excited as a fan of the music when I get to be around people like that. So. No, uh, the only thing I would chime in is I kind of, I kind of feel you like, as a, as a young person, it's it's nice whenever you have that 
that that grateful sense of like seniority of these masters who will come and like you said pat you on the back and like you know talk about life with you you know that that for me makes it playing this music is having the greats come up to you and not necessarily talk music but like you said just talk about life you know what i mean because i feel like that's that's an equal if not more important part of the music is like actually life you know like living it because that helps inform the art inform the playing so definitely yeah Yeah. for sure so the, the book you wrote like are you just telling stories about your experiences or are you interviewing people what what's that about well, it's a, it's a mostly interviews, but the book starts at the end of that week. I was just telling you about like the first night you guys could probably relate to this experience. You know, I'm a kid. I thought I played terrible. <laughs> I was like, okay, they're, they're just, I went back to the hotel. Like I'm in Oslo, you know, I'm, I, you know, I try to order like a bowl of pasta at like 10 o'clock at night and in the grand hotel in Oslo, not realize it cost me like $60 for like, you know, a little thing. And I'm just thinking, this, I, I did terrible. And then, but like, I found out the people sitting next to me was like some people that were at the concert. It was the deputy mayor. And, and over the course of the week, like, I was like, okay, I, I, I did okay. You know, I, I, I didn't completely, whatever. They didn't send me home. So it wasn't that bad. Right. So at the end of the week, I have this funny thing. It's funny in retrospect, we're all on the plane. I feel like, okay, I did my week. I'm on the plane. Oslo to London. I'm in London. We, we you know, Heathrow airport, we get on the plane, stuff's all packed. Will John Gordon make himself known to the flight staff? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> no, this is like literally the second time in my life I've been on a plane, right? So, like, why do I have to make myself known? Like, are they – And it, can you just please come with us and take all your stuff? I'm like, well, am I being bumped off the flight? No, you're, no, we absolutely – we promise you. So they get me off the flight. As soon as I come off the flight, there's a, there's a guy in a suit – with a briefcase walks onto the flight as I come off and like we take a couple steps and they close the door and I'm like, what? And then I actually see the plane start to roll. There's <laughs> like, we're really sorry. He was willing to pay first class price for your coach seat. So, and then I had a real hard, t- yeah. So, I mean, it was unbelievable. Right. <laughs> so this, but again, this was back when Pan Am existed. Right. So, okay. so again, back in the, in the, in the, in the eighties, so I'm walking, I really, at this point, I don't know how I'm going to get back. They, they're they not issuing me another ticket. And the ladies that did it, they felt terrible. They're like, we'll, we'll try to help you. We'll try to help you. Somebody, the next flight is, is booked too, but we'll try to get you on. So I'm like walking around Heathrow for like six hours, like not knowing what I'm going to do. I run into Jay McShann. And wow. he's, big, he's got this big bottle of Aquavitas and he called me a little bird. Oh, hey, little bird, come on. How, how you doing? So he's getting ready to go back to Kansas City. And he's got about an hour to kill. And so I, I've never been a big drinker, but I, I must say the couple of couple of pops of Aquavit definitely cooled <laughs> the nerves a little bit because I'm like, <laughs> you know, because I, I mean, Took for a minute there, but I've never been any place, right? So I'm in, this is, but, you know, and, and everybody was like, yeah, all the flights are sold out. Don't know how to help you. It's like, whoa, okay. So I, I think I'm going to walk around the airport for a week. What am I going to do? So, so Jay McShann starts talking to me. He said, Hey, look, man, you sound good. You're checking out Charlie Parker. That's what you're supposed to do. But now you got to figure out who are you? Mm. What do you have to offer? He said, see, in my day, guys were stylists. You know, you heard one note from Basie. You heard Lester Young play one note. You heard Bird. You heard Tatum. Like you just knew, you know, vocalists, everybody, they were, and he introduced me to, I had never heard the term 
stylist. And he just talked with me about that. That was the, the one thing I remember the most of this hour sitting and hanging with him. Also, the fact that he just kind of chilled me out because I'm like, well, I don't I can't control the situation. So it's going to be whatever it's going to be. But I just I was so struck by that conversation of him basically saying, OK, you're doing what a young kid should be doing. But now you got to figure out how do I find my way? What, what, is it, what is it that I have to offer? So I start with that. And then the first interview in the book is with Eddie Locke, who was really like a father to me. I mean, really him and Eddie Shambly and Phil Woods. And there were some other people like like Charles McPherson and Bob Mincer that were really, really, you know, I mean, but I, I mean, they were like my, my kind of my musical fathers at that, you know, for a number of years, I'd say end of high school into college and after. And Eddie Locke had the same thing to say, you know, in his interview. I didn't tell him about the, the Jay McShann thing, but when I when I interviewed him, which was originally for the Artist Share website, because they're they're like, we want you to do something that's not just your CDs, like do some lessons and what other content. I said, well, I just love to interview my friends and my heroes and my mentors. So great. So that was the whole thing that Eddie talked about. He said, man, coming up in Detroit, think about all those great piano players. You had Barry, you had Tommy Flanagan, you had Roland, you had Hank Jones, and no, and they sounded completely different. And he said, that's the thing I think that people kind of got away from. And he said, you know, it's whatever it is that you have to offer. And it might not be about a whole bunch of notes. You know, it's not like who can play. Because sometimes we go on social media. Like I wasn't on Instagram until like, I don't know, end of last year. And then you go on social media and just like, you know, a shred festival. And (laughs) and sometimes it's cool. Sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I could do some of that stuff, you know. But on the other hand, you know, that's not what Monk was. That's not what Billie Holiday was. That's not what, you know what I mean? Like, what, what, what is the music, really? And so I, I, I start the book with the, you know, that kind of somewhat comedic situation at Heathrow Airport and then being introduced to that concept of what it means to be a stylist. And Eddie talking about growing up as a kid in the scene in Detroit and really seeing exactly that that situation what you know what did it mean to be a stylist in detroit at that time with all those great musicians around and then i'll just end with this charles mcpherson who was a little younger than eddie talked about coming up you know like a little bit later like maybe 15 years later 12 15 years later studying with barry being at barry's house when when coltrane or miles or sonny rollins and just listening to them talk about this same thing about what is it you have to offer and so to me, like as a student, as a musician and student of the music and trying to pass that on to, to other students, I just feel like, you know, that's, that's where we're all looking to go. What is it we have to offer? Yeah. You know, Definitely. I think that's, that's the hardest part of creation, creating anything. And, uh, I, you know, it's such a universal thing for life. I think it's like, who am I and what do I have to offer to this world? And we, we deal with that almost immediately. When, you know, you know, like when you make that transition from a student to a professional. <laughs> Me right and, now. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I can tell you a story. I remember once I was playing a gig and uh, Johnny Vodakovich, I was playing a gig with Ellis and Johnny Vodakovich was going to play also. We had to switch. So I played mm-hmm. a couple songs and all week I'm practicing at home. Like, man, I'm going to fucking pipe Johnny Vodakovich, which is stupid to say and think. But I, <laughs> but I was, was like 20 something. And, uh, you know, and, and so I'm, you know, playing stuff. And of course, I'm sad. And Johnny V plays like two quarter notes or something. Like, and I'm just like, those two quarter notes was better than every 
anything that I could possibly play, which which is crazy because he he's so into the thing that he does. And, you know, I was just trying to sound like probably that week, who knows, Jason Marcellus or Tane or somebody, you know, right. <laughs> I, right. I didn't even know who I was at, tw- at 23 or 24, however, however old I was. So, you know, that's that that journey is definitely universal. And, you know, for sure. I mean, listen, you know. The way Mill Tenton played or like Doc Cheatham, we mentioned, I mean, Doc could play a note. Or, you know, musicians like that. Or, or um, I remember Dwayne Eubanks and I were on a gig at Chris's in, in Philly maybe five years ago with um, with Bootsy Barnes. Mm. You know, and I played with Bootsy a couple times. I played with Larry McKenna down there a little bit. You know, I'd go down and play with different people. But I just remember talking with Dwayne that night and afterwards just saying like, man, you know, when a guy like Bootsy just plays a note, you know, I mean, it just it just means you just feel all this history and all this meaning to it. And that's, you know, I mean, yeah, you you, you got to practice and you got to deal with things on your instrument. But it's 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 about more than that. You know, like like this one of the things that Charles talked, Charles McPherson talked quite a lot about, um, said, you know, when he was would hang out at Barry's and this really came from Bird. They would be like, you got to know all the great artists, you got to know the great painters. You got to know the great sculptors. You got to know poetry. You got to know history. You got to know philosophy. So it's like you got to be. And and Phil talked the same thing about Benny Carter. You know, it's like no, no. You got to speak some languages. You know what I mean? Like you, you got to really be this expansive human being because it makes you a more well-rounded human being in the end and informs yeah. the art. I see what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. As coming out of like college, I'm kind of glad I didn't go to like a conservatory because um. All the classes I was taking from my philosophy class, my religion class, I felt like all of the knowledge and like the history that I learned from those classes also kind of helped me, you know, piece together things that helped inform my art. You know what I mean? Like going back and learning about the history of like, you know, what they were doing in the 20s with pops and all of them. Like it helped me to like create that, that, um, <laughs> looking at the word here, that, that, that map in my brain so I can be like, cool, like this is what it is. This is the sound this is how I get to it. And it helps you develop your own sound, if that makes sense. So definitely. Yeah, for sure. As I'm sitting here and like, it's just interesting because like Craig and I, we're the same age, but to have like some, someone from your generation, my generation, then Cam, who's just finishing up college, you know, in his early twenties, like, where do, where do you think the music is going? You know, as, as it, I mean, it, you've seen it change over the decades like, what do you, what do you think is going and how can this new generation like really, you know, persist and make a living uh, doing what, what you've been doing for, you know, for a very long time now? Well, um, you know, I guess it's a little corny, but I think you just start with, if you just start with your love and your passion, you find a way. Like I have a student up here study with me that had a, had a, like kind of a serious accident during surgery and had to like relearn how to play his instruments and all this. Um, you know, it's really a lot. It was like a big kind of, you know, thing for him to have to deal with, but his passion is there and he finds, finds a way. Right. So there's certain things he's maybe he couldn't, you know, he's not going to be able to do quite the same way, but he's finding a way. And if, if the love and the will and the passion is there, you're going to find a way to make your kind of contribution. Now, to the point about making a living, that's always been complicated. I remember, I remember seeing David Binney in, in being interviewed. And he was talking about like, man, you think about 
hundreds of years ago, like musicians have always gone through, like, it's just, it's, it's never been like a heyday where it's just, it's always great. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I mean, I think there was a lot of work at a certain time, right? Like hey, fifties and sixties, forties, fifties, sixties. I think there was a really a lot of work for musicians, but it's not like it was all great work. You know, mm. I mean, you know, I mean, you hear stories about like, you know, you, I heard stories about like Joe Henderson and train having to walk the bar on their gigs, but Hey, if that's what you got to do to pay your rent, you know, like, you know, that's what you do. Um, there was definitely more work at a certain time. There was definitely, I think for me, I'm trying the last 15 years or so just to, just to, to have some understanding of where the, the direction of things are going in terms of this sort of digital world. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, frankly, you know, I mean, you mentioned about being a student and a veteran. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely a veteran. I've been out here a long time. At the same time, you got to still be learning, right? And so for me, like, like 10, 12 years ago, I didn't know how to use a, um, you know, I, I couldn't use Sibelius. So I actually called some students of mine. Like, you guys might know Jay Ratman. Yeah, of course. Jay Ratman was, yeah, so Jay had taken a couple lessons with me. And I met him in high school. I said, hey, man, here's a couple of your solos that I transcribed. He was like young. He was like 14 or 15. I said, oh, wow, thanks. That's really nice. And I was like, so do you know how to do this? Because I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so I may call you. So he called me for some lessons. And then he studied, I think he did six years of Manhattan School of Music. Okay. I think he did both his undergrad and his master's. And I think he studied for most of that time with Steve Wilson. I know I, I subbed for Steve there a number of times. I may have worked with him in that context as well. And then, I don't know, about maybe 10, 11 years ago, I called him up. I said, hey, man, can I, can I take some lessons with you? Show me how to do this whole thing with Sibelius, you know. So there's still a lot to learn. And, and um, but where we're going, I, you know, I, I don't know that I have a great answer for you, but I think, you know, when I see great young players, you know, as an alto player, I think of, you know, Miguel Sanan, I think of Patrick Bartley, who I, I worked with a little bit when I was at uh, Manhattan School of Music. I remember Steve Wilson calling me and said, so Patrick's one of the most talented guys you're ever going to deal with when you go on. And, you know, I did three or four lessons with him and, you know, any tune and any key, you know, and, and um, but it was interesting, you know, because he also, he had a very, like, he had a lot of different things that you might not think he was really interested in like very, very varied interests. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know. You know, I said, follow your muse, follow your thing. That's going to help you. You know, I, I mean, in terms of, you know, playing the alto, I mean, he was always super strong. I gave a couple of master classes there, I think 2010 and 11. That's the first time I met him and heard him. And a lot of talented people there. Um, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm not thinking of as many names right now, but there's, there's so many talented young people, so many great, talented young saxophone players and people that I've spent time with and, and worked a little bit more with that come to mind are like Andrew Gould and yeah. Sam Dillon and um, Nathan Balot comes to mind. Uh, Livio Almeida, who uh, came and did, did lessons in New York, was back in Brazil. So, I mean, I, I think the music is, I, I, I see, I see the passion, you know, with, with, the way the music found a way and, and the way everybody's working to, to create opportunities with what we've gone through the last year and a half plus. I mean, yeah. as hard as it's been, it's got to give you hope. You know, people really love and need the music. And I, I know for me, just being, you know, being able to play a little bit, go hear some music live. I just, we just need it. We need that community. We need that, that sense of connectedness and the music finds, and that's something Phil said to me. He said, Man, they've been telling me this music's dying since I was starting to get into it in the 50s. He said, but it just, 
it just goes about its business, you know, and it just keeps keeps moving along. And I, um, yeah, that's that's what I see. I see people's love and passion, and I think, you know, the the best of of this music is really the best of what, you know, the the, the American culture really is. You know, I mean, the art form is, um, you know, it's it's to me. I'm just, I'm I'm just thankful to to be a part of it and have it to pursue because um, I think it's, um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a high calling. You know, when, when we talk about some of the people we've been talking about, and yeah, I think it. I think the music finds a way. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, Patrick is an interesting cat because uh, he's he's into that into J pop and. <laughs> we really That's what friends. he was telling me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got a J-pop band. You got to check it out, man. It's 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 actually amazing, man. I, I I said, man, do do it. I think it's great. You know, like like don't not do it because somebody thinks that that. You know, go if 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 you're feeling it, walk through the door. Maybe six yep. months and you're like, all right, I did that. I'll do something else. But <laughs> you know, I think that's true for all of us. You know, like I didn't think I was going to write a book. You know, I've actually since I've wound up writing three um, in the last, I've had three published in the last eight years. I, I never knew, I mean, I never knew I was going to be teaching, right? But it's like, you get out here, you get married, you have kids and you're like, oh, so I got to have a, I got to have a paycheck every week. Okay. <laughs> hey, All that's right. what I'm working on now. <laughs> I get the paycheck you're, every week. No, no, you, 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 you've got some years yet. You've got some years yet, you know. But once the kids are there, you're like, oh, okay. So now it's, I, now I see. Okay. Right. So right. that, you know, this, this thing <laughs> of like, you know, like whatever, you know, traveling the, the world and, and, you know, well, you, we hope to do that as much as we can. And we, you know, you want to make the contribution you can make, but yeah, you have to, you have to figure out. I remember Dick Oates said to me, he said, man, if you could just make a living as a musician, like that's, that's kind of something, you know, that's, that's something right there. Um, and all those guys, I remember Mincer was playing, he was playing Broadway shows, Oates was playing Broadway shows. And then Mincer would play, he would take his um, his Dukoff tenor mouthpiece and would play classical gigs with the with the symphony, with 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 the New York Philharmonic, which was kind of amazing. But so he would, you know, so it's like you you want to be kind of what did Duke say, beyond category. Yeah. So in a way, I think that's kind of the challenge for all of us. And that's a big part of of how we individually sort of survive and make a living you know absolutely that's beautiful man that's beautiful that, that's that that's i hope everybody listening to this especially the young cats and cam t- i hope you're over there taking notes oh you know i got the i got the ipad ready you know taking okay. notes baby this <laughs> <laughs> john has dropped look look man let's let's get to the record man stranger stranger than fiction it's got any it's got anything to do with the movie or is it just it's just so happened that you named this record Stranger Than Fiction. Is there a movie called Stranger Than Fiction? Yeah. You didn't know that? No. I didn't know that. No. When did that Maybe. come out? Man, like, wait a minute. Let me Google this, man. I'm 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 pretty sure there is a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Okay. We're not on fit. Yeah. Uh 2006. Will Farrell. There's a bunch <laughs> of people in it, man. Check out that. I thought I was like, oh, wait a minute. Knows. <laughs> if if Will Ferrell's in it, I I absolutely associate myself with the movie because okay. you know because <laughs> you know it's going to be funny if Will Ferrell's in it. No, I, yeah. I'll just say, no, honestly, man, I wrote the tune. I think it was two thousand one. I wrote two of the tunes. Uh, yeah, Stranger Than Fiction and Havens, 
in 2001, I was looking towards uh, this, this recording I was going to do at Michael Borby's studio in 2002, the next year, which had Kevin Hayes, Ben Monder, Larry Grenadier, and Bill Stewart on it. Wow. But we didn't get, like, we just didn't get a whole record's worth of stuff. And I was like, I told those guys, I said, all right, I might, I might combine this with some other stuff. So I did some other things. And part of that came out on a record called Within Worlds. But um, so that I think it had more to do with like a personal thing at the time where I just thought, man, I'm, I'm in some stuff right now. And maybe a little bit with some of the things that were going on in 01 into 02, obviously 9-11. So just some things that seemed like was not expecting this. Um, the piece Waking Dream I actually wrote at Bill Mays' cabin like when I was out there for like 10 days in 92 because he had this beautiful Steinway and it was, I was like spending 12 to 16 hours a day practicing. I never, I have never practiced that much before or since. Um, so I got a lot done during that period, but everything else was written more recently. And it was really like just looking at the state of the world, the state of the country and kind of lack of shared reality, you know, and it's not mm. like, I don't consider my, I'm not the arbiter of things, right? Like I'm all, no, but like, there's just certain stuff that, you know, like lying is not good, you know, and <laughs> you don't, you know, <laughs> and if, you know, and, and if you're a presidential candidate and 25 women come out and, and talk about sexual harassment, like that's a problem, you know, that's not, you know, so um, I can get very political. I usually try not to get that, but I'm just saying like, uh, you know, when a guy who was like a cartoon character 15 years earlier on The Simpsons, you know, as as a possible presidential candidate becomes the president and he just happens to have been laundering money for the Russian mob since the 80s. And, oh, it's just all like, really? Like, uh, this is where we're at, you know, and, and yeah. from Charlottesville to everything else. And, and and then, of course, COVID. And it was just like, at some point, you we, we just think maybe the crazy is going to slow down a little bit, you know, um, you know, George Floyd. I don't know, man. I just, you know, and I think naively in my own life, I just always want I think the, the tendency is we want to think that we're evolving, right. And that we're growing, we're, we're growing individually. And as a, as a, you know, just as a species of humans that we're figuring out, we got to work this out. Yeah. We're here. You know, we're not we're not off worlding to Mars in a couple of years. Like, you know, <laughs> climate change is real. Gravity exists. Vaccines work. You know, like there's just certain things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the world is not flat. Like, how about that one? I mean, like, like you know, you, you, you get these. I, I don't know these. I, these are just. Yeah. I, and and I, I I'm I can I could go on this topic. I think you you could feel that I could go on this topic for a long time. <laughs> so so I just you know I just look at it and I'm like, okay, let let me just let me just try to process it this way. Um, you know, I, I used to put these long Facebook posts about you know talking about the the, the state of things and how saddened and disappointed uh, some of these things are and. I just thought in recent years, let me just, let me just try to let the music speak for itself. So. Yeah. Okay. 
to kind of piggyback off of that, I think it speaks volumes to the harm that is done when we live in two separate realities. You know what I mean? Like there, like it's one group of people seeing, like for example, George Floyd and seeing like a complete issue with the entire system of how things are run. And then you have people living in another reality, you know, choosing to to see it as like an, an issue of like, well, it was just one person. You know what I mean? It causes real harm or even climate change. You know what I mean? Like we have one people seeing it one way and then one people who are, you know, choosing to see it another way. It, it, regardless of what your beliefs are, you have to acknowledge that if something is, is causing harm, you know what I mean? Like you have to really take a look at yourself and be like, is it worth being a part of, you know, whatever group I identify with? Is it worth having this idea? Is it worth, you know, trying to be right or trying to prove a point when it's it's causing harm? You know what I mean? And I think the, the tricky part too is because most people's natural tendency is you just want to keep your head down. Don't make yourself a lightning rod. But man, if something's wrong, you know, what did John Lewis say? If you see something's wrong, you got to speak up. You got to stand up. You got to take action. And I just think that's the truth because it doesn't, you know, whatever the situation is, it doesn't mean now you could be wrong. Maybe I think, well, hey, that doesn't seem fair. Well, you didn't know this. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't have that information, but I was worried. So at least you start the conversation and 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 everybody's intention is like, we're trying to move things forward here. You know, I, I just, I, I somehow, like, I, I'll just give you a little anecdote. I was going to post this on Facebook. I didn't post it. In 2012, I was, I was doing something. I think it was the year that I was doing, I was in the house band for the, for the drum competition. Um, at the monk uh, competition, and um, and I'm standing backstage, and Colin Powell walks up to me, and extends his hand, says, "Hey, man, nice to see you again. How are you?" I'm like, "You know me? <laughs> like what? How in God's name? Like there was one time me and Seamus Blake played. Um, uh, oop, oop, deep, duck, oop, oop, beep, What's the name of that oh, tune? Yeah. Right. Milestones. I know. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the, the easy milestones, not the original milestones. Where I got to go back and check those changes. I, don't, I was like, I'm trying to play. I better know that too. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so so me and Seamus walked off, and and then the announcer, whoever it was, like Billy D. Williams or somebody, was like, and now Colin Powell and Madeline Albright, and I. And I said to Seamus, I said, wow, I've never opened for two secretaries of state before. And they walked right past us and they just kind of nodded. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So that was maybe the year before. But I had never talked to Colin Powell. And the guy just comes in, just just says hi. He's like, how are you doing? You working? I'm like, I mean, he grew up in the Bronx. He comes from nothing financially. He worked his way up through the military. And over the last 35 years, there's nobody more respected in in foreign policy in any country on the planet. He, he could have absolutely been president. He could have absolutely, absolutely been on a, on a presidential, could have been a vice president. Um, I had some disagreements with him politically, but I love the way he stood up when like going into the Iraq war, when what he was basically presenting manipulating intelligence. And when he found that out, he said, I'm, I will never, you know, I, I was, that was, I was, you know, he'll never basically kind of give, what, what's the word? Forget or forgive the the fact that he was he basically felt manipulated, and he saw also the country kind of going off the rails, and particularly his party going off the rails, and he called it out, mm-hmm. you know. And so I admired that. And you know, here's this guy, 
like we need people like that. We need people that are honest. And if, and if, if you say and do something that's wrong, you got to come back and say, you know what? I really regret that. That was wrong. I was given information that was not. I, I mean, otherwise, how do we, you know, I come, I, I think about this, this concept in South Africa, truth and reconciliation, right? You got to, it's got to start with truth for there to be any, we have to deal with like what's happening in the world in our, in our mm-hmm. own personal lives in our, you know, in our community for there to be healing. I mean, sometimes I feel a little Pollyanna even talking about it. Cause it's almost like it's extremely unhip to actually, you know, well, aren't we all just going to work it, you know, but it's like, man, if we don't call it out when it's wrong, you know what I mean? Like, and everybody's just like, oh, I just want to keep my gig or whatever. Like, no, I mean, you, if something's wrong, like, you know what I mean? I just feel strongly about that. And there's, you know, so I, uh, yeah, definitely. that's, I don't know, that's a big one for me. Cause if you don't, if you don't call it out, you're just basically normalizing it and telling them they can almost get away with it. Exactly. What exactly. you're talking about right now is integrity. And yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately yes. integrity is not in vogue at the moment. No, no, like, sir. <laughs> we do not care about integrity anymore. We care about entertainment and popularity. Yes. Yes. And so as long that as that sweet, sweet me, clout. Yeah. As long as I can put you on CNN every five minutes saying, oh my gosh, look what you did. You're a winner. Right. Like, yes. you know, it's, it's a, it's a cultural problem. Why don't, I think this is a good time for us to, to put our ears on your record, man. And, um, I guess we should listen to this one called Havens because maybe it's, uh, it's the safest one. It's a safe haven. (laughs) 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 So here we go. Dig this show. Give him too much. We don't want to give him too much today, y'all. <laughs> y'all got to go out and get this record, man. Wow, that's that's a true masterpiece. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, who's all on that record or on that track? Uh, on that track, well, um, basically, what we did is we recorded uh, the rhythm section of myself in person in Winnipeg. So that's Jocelyn Gould, recent winner of your Juno Jazz Record of the Year like the Canadian Grammys, a recent grad of our program. She also, uh, a couple years ago, finished her master's at uh, Mich- Michigan State. Will Bonas, the uh, jazz piano prof on piano. Um, Julian Bradford on bass, who's a, a former student at our school. And uh, Fabio Rognelli is the drummer. And then that's Derek Gardner on trumpet. Uh, 
who is also up here with us. And then it's John Ellis on bass clarinet, Alan Ferber on trombone. And I think it's either Reginald Lewis or Tristan Martinson on tenor. I can't remember. They kind of did half and half. They, they split the record on tenor. And then John Ellis and Anna Blackmore kind of split the record on uh, bass clarinet. And then Orrin Evans played piano on a couple pieces. And Larry Roy, our uh, jazz guitar prof, played a solo on one of the tunes. So. Wow, man. Wow. That's crazy, man. Yeah, it's so good, man. You know, uh, it's Thanks. yeah. You're, you're, the, way you, the way you're dealing with music is, to me, is very forward thinking. You know what I mean? Because, I don't know, sometimes, it, you know, cats can sound like they, they're still in 1985. Sometimes, but you know, some other people, like are people like Miles, who always changed. They let the music change as they change. And it seems like that's kind of what you're doing, even though we just met like 45 minutes ago. <laughs> you can tell me well, if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I, well, uh, I, that's what I'm trying to do anyway. I, you know, I'm sitting here listening to myself. You, you know how it is, guys. When you listen back to yourself, you're like, oh, you know, like, you know, every other bar. No, but you said like, since 1985. I mean, and it's funny because like that's around the time that Chikoria Three Quartets came out. That's around the time that that Wynton uh, Black Hodes came out. Like that's, you know, the mid 80s. That was a lot of great, you know, so it's like part of me is like I'm still trying to get to 1985, you know. <laughs> um, now, on the other hand, um, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is what I try to do. Like I, I, I love the tradition. I feel so blessed with all those musicians I talked about, right? Because I think that's just my vision of it. Like, I'll give you a perfect example of somebody who just plays everything and anything, and it's just like a genius in a way that I can't even think of. Scott Robinson. You guys yeah. hip to Scott Robinson? Absolutely. I mean, Scott plays 70 or 80 instruments. He plays a whole history of all music. I mean, he'll do anything from like a Frankie Trumbauer C melody thing to like working with Anthony Braxton to Maria's music to on all these different instruments. And like, and then he'll like pick up a pocket trumpet and play three choruses or something and be like, what? <laughs> like you just play like nine read, you know? So, um, so I mean, I, I, but I feel like, you know, musicians like him, another person comes to mind at like, I mean, and every music, every instrument, Nicholas Payton sits down and it sounds like that's his instrument. Like I only yeah. time I ever played with Nicholas was he was playing drums. <laughs> I was running I was running a jam session at, at the Oslo Jazz Festival in 2003, and him and his whole band, the year it's funny, the year before Roy Hargrove's whole band came down and played, and I hadn't met yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't played with Roy before, but they came and hung for two nights, which was great. And then the next night, Nicholas came and played drums. I was like, I think. I think Nicholas is the best drummer in Northern Europe. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and put that out. Like, I would rather, like, I looked at everybody in the band. I was like, and and I said, and you got to hear him play the piano. And you got to hear him play bass. And you got to hear it like, so. so it's a whole one-man band right there. Yeah, yeah. But but also you hear history in what he does. You know, Definitely. these guys, you hear, you hear a connection to something, but it, yet simultaneously it's forward-looking. So mm. that's kind of my vision. Um, and I, and I love the tradition of the alto. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I feel very connected to it, you know, but I also feel like, but you, you, it, it goes back to that early thing. Like, you know, where are you going? What, what is it you have to offer? If I was just going to try to play like 
Johnny Hodges or Benny Carter or Bird or Phil or Cannibal. Is, well, first of all, nobody <laughs> nobody can play like Cannibal. It's funny, like, like nobody ever you, you know can really sound like that. But but like, what is that in terms of you know a creatively or artistically? So. I love I love those musicians that are connected to the history, but they have their own. Definitely. Direction. That reminds me of a saying that Wendell Brunius has, and he says, keep one foot forward and one foot in the blues. Yeah, I, that, that's a great one foot in the in the in the future and one foot in the blues, would you say? Mm-hmm. That's a great saying. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of my favorite quotes of Wendell. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. So th- this record, now I understand it's stranger than fiction because it's you're kind of dealing with the reality like of that's I guess the world is kind of in at this point, but more, mm-hmm. mostly America. <laughs> and yeah. it's, I, it's funny because I, I didn't go there right away. Like, Oh, this is a political statement, so to speak, but it is really subtle, but you don't seem to be too worried about being subtle when it's time to talk about it. I mean, I, I <laughs> people like tell me like, don't go there, don't go there, you know, but it's like, Man, if we, if, like I said, if you don't call something out that's wrong. Yeah. Are you, you know, are you finding it difficult with critics or other, you know, publications when it's time to, to talk about this subject or? Not too much. I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I also just kind of feel like anybody that gets anything from, from music, like God bless them. I don't, I don't want to say like, I don't want to take that from this. Like, no, that's not, you know, like if somebody hears something that they feel that's great, you know? But I, but part of certainly part of my thinking, part of my, you know, inspiration with it is, you know, dealing with just the politics is, but even more than that, just the kind of trying to find some kind of shared reality and deal with that, mm-hmm. you know, and because I feel like that's until you do that, you can't heal. Let me let me ask you this because, you know, I think the challenge that we face now is. How like like for instance a flat earther? How do I respect? <laughs> how do, how do, or how do, well, yeah, well, whatever. Like, how do I respect? What it could be anything, really, you know. How do I respect your opinion? You know, without because sometimes opinion, sometimes you're just wrong. Like sometimes it's just like there there is a right and there is a wrong. Like some things we can prove and we can't prove. But right. but people are very passionate about things that sometimes are, are just wrong. Like how do, how do we get, you know, continue that dialogue and respect what they're saying, but also like, Hey, try to be heard. You know, I, I wish I had a good answer for you. I feel like it, that's, you know, kind of above my pay grade, but I, it, those are the kinds of questions that I sit with all the time. I will tell you that there was a book that I bought for everybody um, right after November of 2016 by Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny, 20 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And in it, he talks about ways to respond to maybe not necessarily that kind of misinformation, but I I think in part, it's, it's, he responds, you know, gives you some, some ideas on, on how to respond to the misinformation. But I think the bigger picture he's speaking to is how is it that people are utilizing that misinformation? Because, you know, 20 years ago, there'd be some nut on, on a street corner you know, telling you, you know, that, that the Venusians are visiting, whatever, you know, I, I mean, there, there are, there are things, there, there, there are mysteries in this world that are beyond my, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you I, I got it all figured out, but I know right from wrong, you know, like there are certain things in life we know are wrong, you know? So 
like there aren't two, you know, like Charlottesville. No, there weren't, there weren't good people on both sides of that. I'm sorry. Right. So you have to like, but if we don't have some kind of shared reality and then, and that's just up for grabs, you know, in the larger political context, it's like, well, how are people like, how do people utilize that, that lack of, of shared perception of reality to their own ends? You know, and that's something that I have spent a lot of time with and say, like, there's one thing just to say that people are deluded and they've got some bad information. Well, okay, well, hopefully that person will figure it out. But if it's like, I and everyone I know am not going to take this vaccine, which is going to allow the a pandemic to decimate, you know what I mean? Like, so you start to see the way that that these lack of shared priorities or, or just shared realities can can really damage not only an individual, a community, a, a whole society and a country and, and the world. And for me, I think seeing in interpersonal stuff in various community contexts and then on kind of the wider, like just uh, like strictly from an American standpoint, and then just the world, like, man, it's real hard to, 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 to have that evolution that I'm hoping for and that I'm rooting for and that I've you know, and, and seeing what we're capable of when we're, when we have, you know, a kind of shared vision or just at least some shared reality as opposed to what we have now, which feels like, almost feels like we're in a boat and everybody's rowing in various directions. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like, well, we're, we're not heading anywhere real good right now doing that. So um, I, I wonder if sometimes it's a little simplistic, but I, I, I do think that on some levels, we, you know, we, we have to, we have to seek for that. And, and I guess if you're talking to somebody in your life, maybe you got a friend or a family member, like I just, this whole gravity thing, it's a hoax. It's a whatever. It's like, well, you know, I don't jump off a building and try it, you know? And so maybe you just want to, maybe you just want to kind of, you know, I, I know they say you don't want to go at them and say like, what are you doing? You knucklehead or whatever. So like, you, so that's not going to change anybody. But I think, you know, and I and I will I will cop to this. I've had moments in the last twenty years where I came from that energy, hmm. and generally it doesn't help. I might I might feel well. I had a right to be angry or whatever, but did that help? Probably not. Yeah. So yeah, man. We so all, we, all, to, we all have, man. We all been there, just like fed sure. up. And we all sure. been there, wrong. We've been wrong before, but still, like, oh man, I'm right. You're you know, like actually, no, I'm wrong. Well, that's the, and that's the thing too, because sometimes you can, you know, you can have that outrage, and maybe there's some some information I didn't have or you didn't have in that moment. But at least if we're honestly trying to have the conversation, um, you know, I guess what you can do is with somebody like, okay, you really don't, you think the Earth is flat? How do you explain these photos from outer space? Let's talk about it. or whatever. How do you how do you you know? So I I, I don't know, they but that's a answer. tough one. They <laughs> Yeah, there's there's some there's some deep conspiracy that Stanley Kubrick faked yeah. something and yeah. then he whatever, you know, and the <laughs> Illuminati and, you know, yeah. next. Yeah, there you go. You know, one interesting thing that I have noticed is um, and people always say this it's kind of cliche, but I do think it's true, is that music is kind of the great unifier. Because no matter your political beliefs, no matter if you believe the earth is round or flat. When people are listening to music, they're all in there together, having a, that shared experience. 
And, and a lot of times they're all, they all agree, except for that one guy who hates it, but everybody else is like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. So I know we can get there. It's just, we got to find our common ground and that that's going to be the, I, I, it should just be, we're all human and we're all having the same experience. We all just, we all really want the same things. I think right. that's, that's what it feels like when I travel the world. I'm like, oh, we're all just out here trying to live the best life that we can and provide for our families and have a good time and eat some good food and drink some good wine. You know, <laughs> that's pretty much it. It's, but it's funny, you know, it's like sometimes the truest things in life are simple, but they're not necessarily easy. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's that, that difference between this concept being simple of like, yeah, I mean, just, just what we're trying to do. It's not, you know, we're, we're not asking for, for the moon, but, but just that, that kind of, that kind of positive experience you were just talking about. But sometimes it's, you know, there's levels and things we got to go through and, and learn to, to allow us just to have, you know, yeah. to get, get the other stuff out of the way. So, but uh, you know, I, I, I still see a lot of reason for hope, but I think part of that, part of that growth process is if, if that's not happening and things are not there, like, I just feel like, you know, we, we, we have to have that communication to say like, well, why did that happen? And then, oh, okay, now I understand. Absolutely. You know, it may not be as simple as all that, but, but you got to have it. Because otherwise people just going into their camps and I, I saw this on YouTube, I found this on Facebook. And so, you know, whatever. And then you're lost. Yeah. Look, man, we, we're coming to the end. And uh, before we go, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to, to plug all your stuff and tell everybody where to buy your three books and definitely where to get Stranger Than Fiction, the record, not the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so tell tell people how they can connect with you and, and, and buy all your merch. Um, well, okay. So if you go to artistshare.com, you'll see, uh, you'll see me on the homepage there and uh, you can, you can get the CD that way. Uh, the book Jazz Dialogues is available on amazon.com. And um, yeah, just artistshare.com. That's the best way to get to the CD. And um, I'm doing a concert, a Gershwin tribute concert, November 13th here in Winnipeg at the, uh, through the Tarboot series. Um, and it's interesting, I'm playing on Jocelyn Gould's record that morning at four gigs in Winnipeg this fall on three days. Wow. So December, October 1st and 2nd, and then two things on the 13th. So that's gonna be a busy weekend. And uh, I'll probably be back in New York in December right now, it looks like I'm doing doing a duo thing with Charlotte, um, but it's at, at uh, Fort Hamilton High School. We kind of go there sometimes. So I'm just, you know, in, in terms of other gigs, really, that's that's all I have in the book right now. I started, um, you guys know this alto player, Nick Green? I don't know. Does that name ring a bell? Okay. So he was, just, uh, he's a big fan of Charles McPherson, and that's how we got to know each other. He took some lessons with me. And um, his folks own that place, Flying Lobster. Okay. And if, if you know that there's like a, a club restaurant out there and I saw Smolian was playing there with David Wong and Kenny Washington in June. So I went and I'm sitting there and he comes up to me and say, Oh man, my, my folks run this place. Let me get your gig. I was like, yes, yes, I will. I will take, cause like, you know, at that point I'd had like, I don't know, five gigs in 16 right. months or something. So I was playing like a steady, I was playing like a Saturday every month there for a few months. Maybe I'll be back in there and just a few little things like that. So but uh, yeah, just been very thankful for 
for for live music, man. To 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 listen and 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 be able to play again in recent months has been uh, been like water in the desert, frankly. So, mm. right, look, man, we are we. Everybody who's out, every artist is right in there with you, man. We we're happy to be back. So all y'all go get y'all vaccine so we can stay out here. Right, <laughs> right after you get Absolutely. your vaccine, go buy Stranger Than Fiction by John Gordon, and uh, also grab his books. And uh, yeah, John, man, thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, y'all. We'll catch y'all next time. Later. <laughs>